So when we started speaking with Fireball in 2019, um, you know, they're owned by a company by the name of Sazerac. Sazerac has 200, 300 brands, liquor, wine. Um, there's a lot there, right? And when we started speaking with them, um, Fireball stood out for a number of reasons. But, you know, the, the obvious one for us, at least, was that um, cinnamon is already a multi-million dollar candy category outside of Canada's, right? So you got hot tamales, toys, big red gum. People are engaging with the cinnamon flavor. Welcome to the Diamond Miners Podcast, a podcast for cannabis operators by cannabis operators. My name's Benjamin Ballinger, and I'm on a mission to explore what makes great cannabis companies great. I talk with real operators across the U.S. and beyond who are making moves in their markets to find out how they're creating successful organizations that can withstand the test of time in this volatile world that we all know as the cannabis industry. What's up, everyone? This is your host, Benjamin Ballinger, and welcome to episode number five of the Diamond Miners podcast. In today's episode, I had a chance to chat with Kevin Ford from Fireball Cannabis out of Las Vegas, Nevada. And Kevin's managed to pull off what many companies have failed to, which is to bring an alcohol brand over to cannabis successfully. He was able to do that with Fireball, uh, the brand of whiskey that we all know, love, and probably have had some heinous hangovers from in our youth. <laughs> One thing in particular that I think was really valuable from our conversation was Kevin's partnership mentality uh, that he brings to his interactions with his retail shop customers. It's something that I see a lot of other cannabis companies get wrong. Um, so there was a lot of great insights there that I'm excited to share. Now, before we get into today's episode, I just want to remind everybody to please subscribe to the podcast and to go check out our website at diamondminers.co for free articles and downloadable tools designed to help you grow your cannabis company. All right, enough blabbing from me. Let's get into it. Kevin, what's going on, man? Ben, not much. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, chat about some of the stuff you've been doing and what's next in the pipeline for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Why don't we start off with just a quick background on you and, um, you know, what brought you into cannabis in the first place and uh, kind of what, what have you done in the past uh, that's brought you up to today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, was born and raised in Orlando. Um, got my entrepreneurial spirit from my parents as um, they both ran a uh, sports and marketing company growing up. Um, I've spent a lot of my three day holiday weekends as a child, uh, on either a soccer field or at a basketball court, helping out with my parents' business. So, um, got a lot of my grit and hard work and entrepreneurial spirit from them. Um, you know, and really followed my sports path. I was a basketball player, um, up until I got to high school, I thought I'd be in the NBA, um, and then up until my junior, senior year, I thought I'd be playing for Duke or UNC, but, uh, realized that I'm not growing any taller than six foot. And so, uh, D3, short, short in basketball, your yeah, division three basketball is what, uh, what, uh, the story had in the cards for me. So, um, went to school in Washington, DC, uh, school by the name of Catholic university majored in business and, uh, quickly got into the sports business after graduating, um, you know, I was focused more so on sports and entertainment sponsorships. And so 
right out of college, I worked for a company by the name of Learfield, um, and they own and operate all of the media rights for probably 90% of all the major college properties. Um, and so that was my first stint into sports. And then um, quickly pivoted to the entertainment side of, of, of sponsorships and was working for Caesars Entertainment in Las Vegas. And I was doing that for five years. Pretty cool job. I, I helped uh, broker a lot of the advertising partnerships with uh, Zappos Theater and the Coliseum. So where, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, Mariah Carey, Rod Stewart are at the Coliseum. And then I was living my uh, my elementary school dreams and was selling uh, Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys <laughs> and uh, Pitbull and Jennifer Lopez uh, concerts as well. So, um, and that's what I was doing up until the cannabis industry grabbed me. And so I was Mr. Suit and Tie and felt like I was on the path of, you know, working the corporate life. And, um, you know, long story short, I ended up connecting with an old family friend who uh, was involved with a vertical out in Las Vegas. This is 2017. So, um, you know, if you got your history book out, that's when Las Vegas went from medical to rec. And um, I knew nothing. I mean, I was I was a stoner, um, but I didn't have a medical card. I was literally one of those people that were just like, oh, do I really want to be on a list if I get my medical card? Like, that's how naive I was. But, um, you know, I ended up making the leap and taking off the suit and tie and deciding to um, jump into the cannabis space with a um, startup that had a cultivation processing facility and a, um, and a, and a dispensary as well. So that, that, that store was the name of uh, acres dispensary was the name of that, uh, that company. And that's how I got into the space. What were you doing uh, with acres? So I was their Swiss army knife of everything, sales and marketing. Right. And so it was, a pretty unbelievable experience, you know, fast forward to what I'm doing now, which I'm sure we'll get to, but I learned a lot, uh, very quickly learned what a nightmare metric was. And even back then, like that was like the infancy stages of metric, but like yeah. was if, very, if you can imagine it was worse than it, than it is now. It's yeah. Hard yeah, to believe you imagine but... that. No, no disrespect to any metric folks that might, 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 uh, dial in, but step it up. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was, uh, so I dealt with a lot of our wholesale, right? So we were, uh, we didn't really have any brands, house brands at Acres. We had a couple, okay. um, but it really, really a lot of what I did on the sales side, which is bulk, right? So bulk <laughs> distillate, uh, bulk flour, bulk trim. Um, and it was amazing, right? It was like the very uh, first introduction to like cannabis and almost really giving me an example of how cannabis could be a commodity, right? Because yeah. I wasn't selling a brand. I wasn't selling a jar. I wasn't telling a story. Right. There was uh, there was weight and there was your potency and there's what the market wanted. And that's what drove the price. And a lot of the times, right, That that's what's driving the prices in a lot of these markets, even with the brands. But there was no story to put behind what we were selling. I was just selling bulk, bulk product. And so yeah, um, an amazing piece of education to really understand the industry and then um you know and setting up their sops and really just creating standards on how you were brokering um this material and then i also handled all the the retail marketing which again once we fast forward to what i'm doing now was just unbelievable learnings as it relates to how the consumers are engaging uh with products especially in a in, a, in an era where it was I mean, Vegas was exciting in 2017, man. I mean, not to, beyond the usual things uh, or the the usual, or the obvious answers of the lights 
and the shows and the dinners and how sexy Vegas was like, yeah. there's a ton of people coming into Vegas and there's a ton of impressionable consumers, right? It's vice, yeah. you know, the, you know, well, some of the, I feel like some, I feel like Vegas is such a different market than a lot of these other ones because so much of the population, especially, you know, down on the strip and whatnot are tourists who are only right. there for a little while. And many of them are coming from states that aren't legalized uh, as Correct. well. So some of them are probably less sophisticated, I'd imagine, than, you know, folks that are operating in states where their their market base is kind of consistent. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the differences that you've seen being in that type of market? So it's um, it's a little bit of both, to be honest with you. But speaking to what you just spoke of, um, impressionable consumers is what I would call them, right? Um, they don't know what they don't know. And they're, they're in Vegas, mm -hmm. Sin City. So, you know, they don't gamble any of the time of the year. This is when they gamble and drink their face off. So why not go to a legal cannabis dispensary? And so mm -hmm. you have those consumers that just don't, you know, they hadn't smoked for 10 years or they, they used to consume when they were in college and like, and so they don't know anything. And so that was a huge opportunity in itself, uh, especially for brands that were looking to launch nationally. Um, you know, and that's, you know, with Fireball Cannabis, which is the company that I operate now, that's where we started, right? Um, organically, because we were set up in Vegas already. Um, but that was the obvious first choice as a market. And to, to speak about people coming from all over the country, we data collected like there was nobody's business. I mean, we were doing anywhere from, and I like to say we set the precedent for this in Vegas. But we did anywhere from, and I kid you not, anywhere from 15 to 20 pop-ups a week, right? Oh um, and that was just in the two miles. That was just in Vegas, yeah. Vegas corridor, yeah. Wow. And I mean, we were at Reef Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We were at Planet 13 Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Nobody was asking for content. People were asking for a pop-up once a month. Yeah. And yeah. what I realized- And they had to ask for it too, probably. Like, Yeah. You know, and and the like store was like, can you come out? Like- after running retail, and I know I'm kind of fast forwarding to, to what I'm doing now, which is, you know, I run Fireball Cannabis, the official cannabis product of, of Fireball Whiskey. When we yeah. launched that, it was such a no brainer to me. I was like, sure, like we'll spend money on weed maps. Um, you know, Fireball Whiskey doesn't do at home, so we're not going to do billboards and like, sure, let's get the swag. But like our focus needs to be in store. It is so low hanging fruit. There isn't a consumer in the world that walks into a store, has no idea what they want. They're there for a reason. They may know the categorical uh, uh, pr product that they want, right? They, they, they want vape or they know they want to smoke it or they want to eat it. But outside yeah. of that, they have no idea. And so right. before you're going to get to that bud tender, you're speaking to my brand ambassador, who, by the way, is bubbly. They have a basketball papa shot or putt putt. Right. And we're going to be able to probably our number was a we had a we had a forty percent close ratio is what we mandated right like from anyone so that walked 10, by your brand ambassador basically in the shop kind of thing yeah yeah wow. you see ten That's people good. we got to really we got to close four out of them uh, on yeah. on brand and again very niche cinnamon skew right I'm not a wanna that has every flavor yeah. under the sun like I'm a very niche skew and we had a high close ratio because people took your word for it right um, yeah. The bud tender, the brand ambassador, you're the expert, right? If I go to the steakhouse and I say, what do I want to order tonight? And they, they got, the waiter tells me how delicious the ribeye is. And he's, you know, oozing at the mouth talking about it. I'm going to trust the waiter. He he, he eats here probably every night. Sure. Give me the ribeye. Fire you're, not, you're not that guy that asks, what do you, what's you, what do you recommend? Then oh, I'm going to take this. Like, well, why'd you ask? <laughs> like, oh, okay, cool. I'll take the lobster yeah, instead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
I've seen a lot of uh, sort of co-branded products come onto the market. I think we all have, and most of them really don't do well. Um, and obviously the Fireball brand has done great. I mean, you guys have gone into multiple states, grown in each of uh, the states you have a presence in. What do you think is the main differentiator between sort of how you, you approached it? Is it because of the brand that you chose or is it more the method in which you sort of approach the market? Like how, what's the secret sauce with that, uh, that some of these other brands are missing? And yeah, I think it's both. Feel. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, the brand was built, right? And so when we started speaking with Fireball in 2019, um, you know, they're owned by a company by the name of Sazerac. Sazerac has 200, 300 brands, liquor, wine. Um, there's a lot there, right? And when we started speaking with them, um, Fireball stood out for a number of reasons. But, you know, the, the obvious one for us, at least, was that, um, Cinnamon is already a multi-million dollar candy category outside of cannabis, right? So you got hot tamales, toys, big red gum. People are engaging with the cinnamon flavor. Um, mm. So the progression in creating a fireball gummy, um, obviously being cinnamon flavored, was sort of a no-brainer. And that was really why it made so much sense. I don't know. If there's if it's not cinnamon, I don't know what could work the way that it works with us, right? Like we literally use the exact flavoring that they use in fireball whiskey in our gummy. Like we get it shipped in like continuity with, you know, the alcohol is taken out and we're using, and that's why people eat it. And they're like, Oh my God, this does taste like, yeah, yeah. Tastes like fireball. It's like, yeah, it does, but it's a lot sweeter, right? There's no punch to the throat because there's no booze in it. But right. that was really like, that's why I think we've become so successful and a look like right, wrong or indifferent. A lot of these, third-party brands are typically celebrity endorsed um you know and i think like a good case study of of a celebrity endorsed brand it's like you know you look at casamigos like sure like i think that you see george clooney on his motorcycle on the side of the casamigos delivery trucks but outside of that like it doesn't say george clooney's tequila it doesn't have his face on the label right it's casamigos and most people don't know that that's clooney's tequila like maybe something and he owns it he's not even just the spokesperson you know right and so I think that's, you know, and again, there's no, no knock on people that are using like, you know, I think Willie's reserve has been around since 2017 and they're still kicking. Right. So they're doing something yeah. right. But there's a lot that have gone out there and that have kind of flopped. And I think a lot of the issues get to just trying to be everything right. You're a celebrity brand and you, and you want to do vape and you want to do flower. And like, yeah. we've stuck to one thing. I can't tell you how many times I get every day. Well, why don't you do a drink? Why doesn't Fireball make a THC drink? And there's a lot more, re- you know, the reasons why it makes sense to do that are the exact reasons why we won't. Dude, it doesn't. Um, I can't more- imagine drinking a full, like, eight ounces of Fireball whiskey, maybe a shot. <laughs> right. That'd be painful. Right. Yeah, it would have to be a shooter. And look, is it a good idea? No. Sure. But the core business of Fireball is the liquor, right? right. So we're not trying to compete with the, with the mothership, right? right? And so... But again, we've stayed so true to who we are, where we're just a cinnamon gummy. What about hard candy? What about gum? What about a vape that has cinnamon? What about flour with karyophyllene terps? It's like all great ideas. We're going to stick to what works and we're a cinnamon gummy. That's it. It's so different than you. That's like such a uh, opposite end of the spectrum from most brands, I think, that really struggle with like shiny object syndrome. Um, I think it speaks very much to sort of the discipline that you guys have been able to overcome that maybe FOMO of seeing all these other things that are coming out and really focus on your core competency. Um, you know what I mean? That's, that's very rare in this industry. I feel like. 
and there's reasons for that. We don't own a license, right, Ben? So um, you see a lot of these folks that are investing and have other investors of a license, and it's not a bad practice to survey your business and say, okay, what are some areas where we can create incremental revenue, right? Like we're really good at making flour. We also have this processing license. So let me make a gummy. And that's why you see everyone try to do everything, right? Because they invested in the, in the, in the facility and they invested in their license. And so you need to try to reap the most benefits. Like we're kind of at a, the mercy of our license holders. So even if we wanted to, um, there's hurdles for us to get mm. there, right? And we have to ask permission of the license holder. Um, you know, we spent a lot of money on our formulation for our gummy. Um, you know, and so like we're not just going to a to a to a processor and say, hey, here's our fireball yeah, flavor. Yeah, we right. Want, and so like um I think that's a lot of what has to do with it. Um and then we, you know, we we've you would think, you know, with the with the fireball name that, you know, I I, I can remember the days that we launched and you know, we had a, a a big old like tour bus wrapped in fireball and we had all this swag and all this and everyone's like, oh, it must be great to have this alcohol money back. And I'm like, what do you mean? Yeah. I was like, we're, we're paying them. Like yeah. we started at like, they're not putting into this. We're just being very punctual with where we're spending and what we're doing. And I think that's why we've been able to, um, you know, survive, right? It's not easy yeah. uh, what we've right. been able to do. And we definitely had our challenges in the beginning of this thing, but um it's it's keeping an eye on the prize at the end of the day. And I mean, another thing that's you know sort of a challenge for you guys is like I feel like the edibles market and the gummy segment in particular is extremely competitive. Um, I was looking at some numbers just yesterday uh, in the Canadian market and sort of looking at the growth and skews in the edibles category uh, compared to some of the others, but then contrasting that with the market share, right? Like it's not the largest category, but it might have the biggest growth in in SKUs. And I don't feel like that's just specific to Canada. Uh, most of the markets that I'm familiar with, I feel like everyone and their mom's kind of coming out with uh, gummies and stuff. So from kind of like a sales perspective, because I know that's another huge strength for you outside the marketing side of things, like what have you done to overcome that and differentiate product outside of obviously having an alcohol brand behind you, but, um, you know, going into some of these markets that you're in and, and stand out on the shelf so you can keep growing. Yeah, there's a couple of things and we obviously waved the fireball flag, right? There's nobody that competes with yeah. us alone on the branding and the name and the fact that we have an outside, arguably one of the biggest CPG brands to enter the cannabis space um, that existed outside of cannabis. Uh, we waved the cinnamon flag hard, right? There's not many. Yeah. Uh, I think Mr. Moxie's does a really good cinnamon mint, um, but there isn't too many cinnamon gummies out there that um, have survived, right? And I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are the fireball name. Um, mm -hmm. You know, going deeper, Ben, on ways, because a lot of the times I can't compete on price, um, you know, and we've adapted our model a little bit over the past year so that we can be a little bit more competitive on price. But a lot of the times we were definitely not the lowest and we were sort of like upper middle and then in mm -hmm. some markets we were the highest price gummy um and a lot of that wasn't necessarily because we felt that because we had a bigger brand that we could sell it for more um mm -hmm. i think maybe initially we had that thought and we quickly realized that consumers if it's a distillate gummy it's a distillate gummy in their eyes right and so right. <laughs> um you know our pitch and our uh, value proposition a lot of the times when i'm sitting across from a a GM or an owner or a buyer is what we do as a brand that's ancillary, right? Um, and this goes back to my sort, you know, my sponsorship sales days where it's like, 
really understanding the pain points of a store and how I could be a, as a brand an aid to you above and beyond putting a, a good product on the shelf that sells, right? That should be a given. How can we partner with you on a fireball Friday and bring in a food truck and, you know, you're struggling with your average ticket is at 60 bucks and your competitors are average basket size is 95 to 100. Okay, how are we getting you there? Cool. We're going to come up with this food truck fireball Friday. We're going to get you this really badass deal and we're going to create this bundle that's inevitably going to get them to if they spend this, then they get a taco and they get a free T-shirt and a hat, whatever. Very obviously you know, simple analogy. Um, but we really like to roll up our sleeves and figure out how we can bring value to the store. I mean, Fireball Whiskey is always doing something unique and out of the box and fun. If you've seen them debate at a music festival or a bar crawl, like they literally spend this much zero on out of home marketing. They're not allowed. You've never mm -hmm. seen a Fireball commercial nor have you ever seen a fireball billboard. You never yeah. will. And there's a reason for that, right? They're boots on the ground. They're scratching and clawing very much like Red Bull wing team style yeah, approach say, right. where they're going to be in front of the consumer <laughs> and you're going to see them do something funny and memorable at the bar or whatnot. And so we've taken that same approach to, as I sort of was speaking earlier, when we launched in Vegas, we'd show up with a, with a, uh, a tour bus branded fireball. We'd roll out a red carpet and we'd have cornhole and basketball hoops and stuff. And that's just adding to the experience of the consumer. Um, you know, is it tangible for a lot of these stores? No, but they need programming like that. Um, and I still think that stores are underserved with a level of experience at the level of retail. And so um, we doubled down on that in a big way and really sort of got them to envision like how we could be, like, we're not just here to call you every two weeks and ask you for a reorder. Like we yeah. actually want to start building a relationship with your customer. And that's, that's a great point that you bring up that so many brands kind of fail to realize the opportunities there. Like ultimately, who's the who should be the most uh, experienced and have the most expert opinion on how to sell the product? It should be the company that owns the product, right? So yeah. I think a big obligation, and it's not just an obligation, it's an opportunity too, right? Is to figure out how to get the stores to move through the product more because A, that benefits the store. They're making money off that. The product's not just sitting on their shelf collecting dust, right? Mm -hmm. uh, obviously it helps you because then you're moving more volume through the store. And it's just a, a mutually beneficial situation. I think it's awesome that you guys take that even a step further and talk to them about uh, pricing strategies and stuff to get their basket prices up because that is a, a huge, not an easy win, but it's, a, it's like a small adjustment that can make an enormous difference on their top line. Um, and, and most shops are just in the mindset of how do we like steal the person from the next door shop by offering it a cent cheaper. And they're, they're missing the, the, the experiential portion of it that you're talking about. Like, that's why you have brick and mortar, right? You're not just a delivery service. You're a place people can go. How do you take advantage of that, uh, physical space? And that's something that at, uh, Steezy in, in LA, um, that did really well was we had like a, instagram booth then they would change it out every now and then right and sometimes it. it would be sponsored by the influencers um i know like queen sin had a booth at one point and i think trippy trees had one and yeah uh, you know it was, a, it was a people would go for that and it was like there's always a crowd around those things right sure and yeah then they go into the dispensary and we had this like tunnel that had laser lights and music playing and the whole thing was designed around an experience and like you said not every shop's like that. Most aren't. But what can you as a brand do to help them 
gain some of those advantages um, to, to get more of a experience. So it's not just like I went into this one today and I went into this one tomorrow. And the only difference was this thing was a little bit cheaper over here. So yeah, no, that's absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. And, and I, I think from the experience standpoint, that it's not a one size fits all. Like there's some stores that like the consumers don't want to deal with an experience. They know what they want. They want to get in. They want to get out like your local liquor store. Like I'm going in, I don't drink anymore, but you go mm-hmm. in and you buy the bottle of booze that you want, or you grab your 12 pack and you get out the door. You don't want to deal with shit. But like, mm-hmm. maybe if I was going and shopping for a party, and I wasn't just shopping for myself. I go to Total Wine and Spirits or, you know, if you're in Vegas, you go to Lee's Liquor. And then that's an opportunity where like, oh, wow, like there's a wine tasting over here. And like, mm-hmm. here's, you know, David Portnoy cut out with the high noon thing that I want to like, like those are the things and areas where like you got to kind of pick and choose which retailers you really dive mm-hmm. into. Um, but yeah, I mean, going back to the average basket size, that is, I think, the most low low hanging fruit that like we're not or retailers are not paying attention to it's, you know, you have a bunch of order takers, right. And that's fine. Again, for certain stores that are churning out pre-rolls and people are coming because they have the, you know, like I, I think Michigan, which I know you dealt with a lot where like there's stores that like, you know, you're getting your five, five carts for a hundred bucks or whatever the deal is that, like, you know, it yeah, exists. No, no you know customer services deal. package with it. And they're loud and proud about that. Like you're getting the lowest price and you're getting, you're getting what you pay for. If and you don't in come in and out, we're going to yell at you. <laughs> you're in and out, right? Yeah. But like, let's Emporium think about style. like, you know, I always think about, so I worked at a restaurant in Washington, D.C., a restaurant in Clyde's. Um, mm. And I still to this day think about the way that they trained me as a 21-year-old college student on how to present the menu. And it wasn't like, it was a nice restaurant, right? But it wasn't like some like yuppity, like, upscale like it was a good little bistro type restaurant but there was just simple things that they taught us that like if you followed it you were going to have a ticket size that was worthy of a 20 dollar tip right so you mm-hmm. got to get them to 100 bucks um you know you get your 20 percent um you know you get your 20 dollar tip um but there were certain little tidbits so one of them was like you never ever asked if they wanted to see a dessert menu you just you just gave it to them Right. So like you just walk up and you say, Hey, here's our dessert menu. And like, you know, maybe rarely they're going to say no, but if you put something in front of them, they're going to, they're going to read it. Right. And so all of a sudden that bread pudding that may have not sounded as good if I verbalize it, but on paper, you're like, Oh fuck. Like, let's get a bread put. Oh, they have or the the cart, the dessert cart that just rolled that thing around. That's even better. Oh yeah. And you're just like, right. And so like, I think there's a lot of little things that, the bud tenders could be, uh, uh, you know, prompted to do that allows you like, what is your like under $5 sale that like, you're going to hit them. With, right. And that's a lot of like, you know, I hate to kind of coin fireball as like a novelty product, but it is a unique product. Right. And so yeah, I like to say that we're not a substitution to your, uh, you know, your, your smokies sour watermelon, we're a supplementation, right. right? So like, we're not, someone is buying that sour watermelon is always going to buy it. Now they're just buying a fireball with it because like their yeah. aunt loves fireball or it's yeah. a Thanksgiving tradition. And so like, I try to get buyers and managers to see it that way. When I pitch it to owners who are typically obviously the business folks, like it makes a lot of sense to them kind of goes over a lot of people's head. And I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, but I think our industry will be there. Yeah, I think that the you know the educational efforts that are made by brands like yours is going to take you know take us a long way towards that, right? Mm-hmm. It's that partnership mentality, and like you said, exactly like you said, it's not just dumping product 
on the stores uh, and then they don't hear from you again until you're kind of harassing them to re-up. Meanwhile, where was the support to help them get through that product? You know, right. Absolutely. as someone that's worked with a brand that was typically the number one seller at most of the shops we were in, I can tell you that that was the biggest sales tool we had. Didn't even have to sell after a while. Like it became order taking because like, you know, if you can help them learn how to move through the stuff and your product is making them money, then they're going to focus on bringing more and more of that in pretty much to the point where they can't sell all of it. Like they will keep yeah. upping that volume as long as they can sell through it. So it, I think it's definitely in the interest of the brands to start thinking more on those terms, right? Is how can we benefit our customers? Because the consumer is not really the customer. The consumer is the consumer. The customer is the retailer if you're a wholesale brand, right? I think yeah. that's sometimes uh, conflated, you know, when when they're thinking about like who they're marketing and their, their sales efforts are, are aimed towards. Absolutely. Um, so what do you got going on now uh, besides kind of the growing, continuing to grow the Fireball brand? Are you doing anything else in Canada just right now? No, I'm not doing much. Focus the eyes on the prize. So, um, you know, we we just got acquired 49% of us, um, which is super exciting um, and awesome. just looking to looking to grow. So we've partnered with um, a group by the name of Greenlight Dispensaries. Hmm. They're out of yeah. Missouri. Uh, they're one yeah. of the biggest privately held uh, multi-state operators um you know 15 retail licenses in yeah. missouri two cultivations two processing license they have a footprint in west virginia arkansas south dakota um illinois they have a dispensary and they're looking to conquer um and so it, it's great to be part they're of also with- aren't they like debt free i thought i heard something about that which was like blew me away yeah no uh, so they, they actually just issued uh they actually issued a dividend in Q1. Yeah, um, that's what it was. Yeah. Right. The only yeah. company, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Like how many that cannabis is, companies is. are out there actually issuing a dividend? Like these guys made money, right? Um yeah. now, if you weren't making money in the past three months in Missouri, you really were trying hard to screw things up because <laughs> it's uh it's crazy out there. But you know, we're um we're at the point where we've really kind of got and I hate to use this word because cannabis will will remind you quickly that um, nothing is on autopilot. But a lot of the markets that we're in right now, like there's some markets that we've had to walk away from. There's some sums that we've walked away from and we've came back in. Um, but we've really found the right partners in each state that we operate in. Um, and now it's it's about expansion, right? I mean, everyone's talking about it, but there's a couple of very exciting states to, that are going to be coming online. And um, being first to market is always vital. Um, and so, you know, all eyes are on, you know, New York right now. I think that light switch is going to turn on faster than people than people understand. I know it's mm-hmm. uh, kind of Groundhog's Day there as it relates to like when things are really going to pop off. But Right. Um, you know, because I think there's only eight licenses that are active right now. Um, you know, and they I think have that whole like the bodega system and stuff is very different, I think, than a lot of the yeah, other states. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like prop two established. Days. Yeah. yeah. All over again there. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of the states that you have left and kind of what what was the reason for that? And then the ones that you went back into, sort of what uh transpired that motivated you to try it again? So we left California. California was just impossible, um, you know, price compression and not being vertically integrated there. Um, yeah. There was just no room for us to make money. It's not that the product wasn't 
a product that was well received. I will tell you, like, interestingly enough, and anybody in the California market listening here will, will attest to it. They're very jaded and that's fine. Right. Like they've seen everything come out, like every celebrity brand that wanted to get involved in cannabis. Like when you talk about like launch parties, like when you talk about brand launches, like in LA, like there's like, we all mimic what they do there. Right. And so like anything that I would bring to a Missouri or to a Michigan that was like, Whoa, was kind of like an everyday thing uh in in the california market um the math just wasn't mathing as i like to say there between slicing our pie between a distributor you know the processor and the sales team um already slim margins on those products there wasn't much money to be made so and you know what Cure Leaf gave us beautiful cloud cover to leave a market and for you not to get, uh, you know, like they left <laughs> yeah, three markets yeah. and I was like, beautiful. You didn't get too much egg on your face for it. If the big boys can walk away, then we can walk away. Um, so that was one that we've left and we probably won't go back into. Um, Michigan um, has been a roller coaster, you know, um, you know, we, and, and I'm very open on LinkedIn on our, our pitfalls. You know, we put out a product initially that just wasn't great, right? Like we had a lot of focus on automation um, and the dosing integrity of our gummies. So it was like a dentine ice pack of gum type mm-hmm. of gummy to where it kind of popped out. It was very gelatinous. It was a pain in the butt to get into. And we really like, and looking back at it, it, it pains me, right? Because we were in 90% of the market in Michigan and I'm still still calling retailers to say, Hey, give me another shot. No pun intended. But, um, you know, we, we, we came out of the gate, you know, we had, uh, we had good partners, um, but you know, we didn't necessarily have the right models. Right. And and that's a nice way of saying like the partnership wasn't working. It wasn't because of the people or the capabilities. It was, it was the model that we came in and that ultimately falls on us. Right. Like if we didn't come to the table with the right business model to actually scale for success, I'll fall on the sword there. And so um, as it relates to the Michigan market, the dynamics of the market hasn't changed. It's almost gotten a little bit tougher. I think uh, that's a kind way to say it. Um, You know, when we went in there for rec, I was selling hundred milligrams at $16. You know, now I'm selling hundred milligram one piece slammer at (laughs) $1.75. Yeah, I know. Which is fun. It's a fun product to sell. It's very much like the fireball whiskey shooter, but um, the key there was that we found the right partner to make that product. It's priced appropriately. Um, I don't own a salesperson. It's a sales team in which mm-hmm. the, you know, my license holder is the one selling it. Um, it's a different model. I'm making less per widget sold, but my SGNA isn't there. Right. And so, and that's a lot of where we've sort of changed our models to like the margins are so slim. And anyway, you spoke about it being the most flooded category there is in gummies and in, in, in the space it's the same movie in every market you get right. in the price points is amazing you like, oh my god margins. we're gonna make it so much money what's everyone talking about and like, hmm. right and then all of a sudden everyone figures out that they should be making a gummy out of their license they don't want to carry your gummy anymore because they're going to sell theirs yep. they're going to yep. do it for six months they're going to flop some will do well and then, then they'll, they'll bring back you back in them. But then at that point, they've halved the price, right? And now you're at, you know, that's why you see most of these markets sit between six to nine dollars for 100 milligrams, Michigan not included. But that's an example of a of a state that like we just had to sort of adjust who we were and our identity um, as it relates to what our model was. Um, and now we're back in action and we're doing well. And I love the state of Michigan. You know, it, it, the, if for, for those who have not been into Michigan, the the 
cannabis culture there is so vibrant, is so alive. Um, there's so much knowledge. There's so much respect. I mean, it is a yeah. very fun market to, to, to be operating in. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because it's not a me too market with California like they and I've said this a couple times is there's definitely not as much um, appreciation for or like idolization of California as some of the other markets. Some of the ones you mentioned in particular, right, like kind of blowing people away, um, I think from like a maybe a vent perspective. Yes, but from like the perspective of, hey, we're from California cannabis, like we're coming in, we're cool. Okay. It doesn't really flow very well over there. They prefer brands and sort of their culture that's within their state uh, in many ways. And I think that a hard lesson we had to learn when we went into Michigan was how to really come to the table from Michigan and not from yeah. California. Like we could be influenced by California, but our brands and our story uh, had to be from Michigan. Truthfully, not bullshit, but like truthfully, like how are we leveraging the people of Michigan in our, on our teams? Right. And how are our brands a byproduct of Michigan itself and not just, you know, a secondary uh, sort of market for a California brand. Um, so it's, a, you know, it's I, I can definitely see what you're talking about with kind of the way the, the consumers are very, very cannabis culture passionate, but very Michigan cannabis culture passionate. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, and we run into that outside of Michigan, you know, Michigan was definitely some, some uphill battles, but there's, there's two types of people. They're either like, Oh my God, fireball. Like, this is cool. Yeah. Like, this is badass. I, I got and it. You're going to sell me on it. Yeah, exactly. Half is like, wow, like big alcohol and you're coming into mm -hmm. cannabis, like mm -hmm. screw you. Like you were fighting against prohibition, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, I'm not the, you know, I'm not the guy, right? Like I'm not like, yes, I'm fireball, but like, I was a cannabis guy first, right? I'm only I, the good part. Like, I don't take any of the blame, only the credit. Right. So that's I'm kind of an interesting thing is like, I guess on one hand, it's a sort of like an asset for you to be associated with them. But then in certain situations, maybe it's actually kind of a liability that you have to work through as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's, that goes into all of my sales training. Like, look, like you will get, you will encounter, um, you know, that person that is just like completely against it and like thinks yeah. it's completely whack um and it, that's fine that's fine they're entitled to their to their own opinion and you only got to close 50 percent or whatever right so right exactly 40 percent <laughs> you're good baby so so you're so it sounds like when you went into michigan uh at least for the second time you've stepped back a little bit from the active sales and you're you're outsourcing the sales as well to the processor uh team yeah. is that correct and, and yeah are you, is there any like sort of coaching or anything that you're doing to get them to sell similar to the way you guys were selling in the other States you're in or how does that go? Yeah, absolutely. I like to use the analogy, te teach them how to fish. Right. And mm -hmm. then, um, you know, so typically I'll go to market for a week. We'll do ride alongs. You know, they get to hear my pitch and how I discuss fireball, my value proposition. Um, I think the most important thing for these sales folks to see is um, how I handle objections. As we were just speaking, you're going to get them. Um, you know, how you're overcoming certain stores. I mean, I've heard everything under the sun as it relates to why they won't bring on a product, whether it's has to do with my product specifically, or um, it may be more about what's going on in their business. And so, mm. um, you know, so typically it's that like fireball pep comes to town, rah, rah, get everybody fired up. And yeah. then a lot of it from there is just a lot of weekly check-ins, right? Where I'm just monitoring a lot of the data. I'm trying to help do a lot of the things that salespeople in cannabis 
tend to just not have the time to do. Right. Um, and I've had this, this is the second time I've had this conversation today. And you'll see some more sophisticated operators start to adapt this model. Um, and it's not new, right? It's the same thing that the Frito Lays guy does at his convenience stores and the alcohol distributor does. You have new business sales and then you have account management. And right now in our industry, a sales, uh, a sales individual is tasked with doing both, right? Um, they're tasked with having to sell. Um, and they're also tasked with having to get their displays on there and be able to get their digital Dropbox over to the buyer, like everything where, um, you know, that's a lot of what I try to be, try to help out with is like, how, how do we live digitally and how is my product? Um, and thank, thank God there's a lot of really awesome tools out there like Pistol or Alpine IQ to where you're able to sort of identify when you fall off a menu, like where back in the day, and I say back in the day, that's maybe a year ago, because these platforms are fairly new, maybe give it two years where the menu scrubbing was done manually. So right. me living in Florida and I Rolling have a sales the team weed maps listing. You're just going on. It's up there hey, or not. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed because if you know, because you typically, you know, we audit within the first week that our products hits a shelf, we're auditing their menu because we know how these intake managers are. They're inundated with metric as we just spoke mm -hmm. about. And like they're not always going to get they're not going to take care of your baby like you would. Right. So like, right. There's Sometimes little the product things doesn't like, even get on the shelf. I mean, it's a it month later. Right? Like, Oh, we haven't gotten to it yet. And you're like, like Oh, sales suck, man. Like, okay, cool. Yeah. It's not on the shelf. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's menu. in the storage room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, like I've learned the hard way that like, you can't expect for the store to handle that for you. Like it is your right. responsibility. Like yeah, it is exactly. never okay for a salesperson to come and tell me, well, they don't have it on their mint. Like, well, that's your fault because you have to go in there and force their hand. Um, so those are like the, the nuances that like seem like they're not that important, but when you start stacking states and retailers on top of each other and yeah. you start to realize that like you maybe are not living on, on, on your digital platforms as best as you can, or you haven't gotten the right point of sale material out to certain stores. Um, and so those are the things that we look to support on, which really Ben is more of a traditional distributor model, right? Like as yeah. you would look at booths, right? Like where right. you have the distribution team that's local to the state that they're in and the market that they're in and they yeah. deliver the product and they fulfill the product. Um, right. When they run out, it's a vendor managed inventory system to where the, the, the vendor is the ones replacing the shelves. Mm -hmm. And then it's up to the brand to ensure that those delivery and distributors have the appropriate point of sale and the signage and the initiatives that then get communicated to the retailer. And so that's where we're looking to really have our business sit is just being able to really help ideate promotions and sell through um, and identify where we need to help and, you know, where we can scale success. It's nice talk. It's nice sort of talking through some of these more creative ways uh, to do things that, you know, like you said, it's it's pulling inspiration from other industries, but it's not something that's super typical in cannabis right now. And um, I think it's one of the main reasons why a lot of the brands struggle is their lack of support for their customers and viewing it as more of a partnership as, as less of a transaction, you know, because um, the first transaction means nothing. Uh, it's, it's about the lifespan. Uh, you can make exponentially more together over time, right? So oh, absolutely. I mean, that's where the bulk of your business comes from, right? Like 
you know, I have the, um, I like to think that I coined the term tips, which I kind of did in cannabis. So tips is also an acronym for like alcohol drunk awareness training. If you're a server, mm-hmm. um, which is ironic, but my tip stands for training incentive, uh, promotion slash pop-up and then sample slash sales display. Very four mm-hmm. simple things that every brand knows that's it, it's important, but unless mm-hmm. you drill into your sales manager's head, like how we accomplish tips with this store. Mm-hmm. And typically you got to do that within the first 10 to 15 days, right? Because you're going to be measured on your sell through within the first 30 to 45, right? So if I wait to week five or week six to accomplish tips, then you're fucked, right? Yeah. Um, so this is like an onboarding system, that, you know, essentially yeah. right? with the very simple the and there, there's obviously yeah. a lot of details to like each sure. level, but like you got to educate the butt tender, right? So you got to train mm-hmm. them, let them know it's the official cannabis product of fireball whiskey. There's no alcohol in it, blah, blah, incentive. If you can institute an incentive from day one, I don't think anyone would argue that that's not a good plan, right? Give the butt tenders a reason to sell your product from the jump. Um, pop-up or promo, right? So having some sort of fireball Friday, buy one, get one. If that can coincide while you have a brand ambassador in the store, it's going to do wonders to your numbers when you initially launch. And then samples and sales display. You got to sample the bud tenders. They need to try your product Mm -hmm. and you need to have some sort of sales display up, right? If you could check those four boxes in the first two weeks that your product hits the back door, you're already setting yourself up for success. And then kind of like what you said, it's like, that's the that's where your the bulk of your business comes from because it's great to get a new order but if they're not reordering in four weeks you're going to have a problem exactly yep i think i always judge brands off of their second order not the first order. i've I've had people come to me before proposing uh licensing deals when we were doing processing up in michigan Uh, i had a couple conversations with folks and uh, at least one one of the times we had a conversation where the the sort of uh boast was that X amount of dollars of product have been sold into a new market. And I said, is that your first sale or your second sale? And it was, oh, it's the first sale. I'm like, well, you know, that's just, that's not really a consumer buying the product. That's just the customer buying it because they had a good relationship with the distributor that you were working with or whatever. Right. Come back to me in a month and let's talk about where you're at now. Because if that number isn't grown or zero, then, you know, that, that just means that you dumped a bunch of product onto people's shelves that they're never going to sell through until it goes exactly. into the bargain bin. I got a couple just kind of like standard questions that I ask on these things, um, sort of just more related to just kind of what you do personally. So um, first question on that, uh, where do you see the cannabis industry in five years? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Hopefully federal legalization, right? Um, If you asked me five years ago, if we'd be at federal legalization, I'd say yes. So um, I'm not, I'm not hedging my bet there, but I, I, I do. Hopefully we see that. But I think, ironically, a lot of what we were just talking about is I think that this industry is only heading towards a distributorship type model. A lot of what you see, and I know they have a slightly different business models, but like the Navis and the herbals of the world, I think are what is where you're going to see this industry play out, whether that's mm-hmm. five or 10 years, but um you know, I think you're seeing the maturation of a lot of these markets. You're seeing consolidation. Not every brand could be alive for so long. So you see brands yeah. come in, you see brands fall off, and then you see the ones yeah. that are there to stay are there to stay. Um, you know, I've been absolutely fascinated. And I, I, I wrote a LinkedIn post about it last week, ironically, about the Delta 8, Delta 9, and really just a smoke shop business model. Uh, my wife works for one of the biggest e-cigarette 
uh, manufacturers out of Orlando. And I am just blown away about the simplicity, but also the normalcy of which these distribution models operate, where there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of retailers, and there's hundreds of thousands of product types, and you can't service every single retail shop. So you're right. talking about a market that is not packed by licenses. Anyone can open yeah. a smoke shop, right? And so like, it's impossible for you as a brand to adequately service them. So you go to a distributor that's right. local, right? right? Or regional that is set up to service those smoke shops. And they are they have the capabilities and infrastructure to do so. And your client now is the distributor, right? Yeah. And then the distributor then services the retailer. Um, and their value is the fact that they have the infrastructure and the relationships in place to get into that particular absolutely. territory. And, yeah. yeah, and there's there's yeah. ten groups to, that they go to, and you know, so maybe mm -hmm. if someone lives in Florida, they have two or three distributors that they deal with. Mm -hmm. So they have two or three purchase orders that encompasses all of their products, from rolling papers to the tray uh, to to trays to kratom to all the goofy products that they sell in there. But what's amazing to me and don't quote me on these numbers because they're not accurate, but it, they're high, right? Like they'll spend 50 to 60 grand a month with a distributor on an advertising campaign. Mm -hmm. And then they'll see 250, 300 grand back in orders. Um, right. And it's, it's the pay to play model that we've seen a little bit of on the retail side of brick and mortar and cannabis, mm -hmm. but without, I mean, on that side, like you might as well throw your money out the window a lot of the times, at least in the cannabis side, because there is no proven ROI to a lot of these programs. Some of them have done a good job, um, but that's we where also I think have. So it's like you said, there's exponentially more retailers in these other markets, right? So their their power is greatly diminished in cannabis. You've either got entire swaths of territory that don't have anything at all, uh, especially early on, right? Um, which is like in California, for example, the distribute, you know, the third party distributor model in the beginning really didn't work. And a lot of companies went out of business trying to do that. Why? Because you had 300 shops. So it's like, you know, that, that idea that, that what you were talking about where you have to leverage the distributor because they have the infrastructure in place to service all these, uh, you know, accounts that you couldn't possibly do yourself. That wasn't the case back then because, you know, you're talking about a few hundred, accounts and even today you know the numbers are going up in the legal states but it's still drastically less per capita than than these other markets Absolutely. and so i think that power dynamic has shifted a lot and you see a lot more pay to play in cannabis i'd imagine uh because what are you going to say like no i'm not going to do well then there, there goes like one one hundredth or one sure. five hundredth of your entire market you know and yeah it, yeah it's it's unfortunate so, I mean, it'll be interesting. I don't think it'll be, you know, even when federal federal legalization comes about, I don't think it'll be a light switch where overnight um, the industry is completely different. But there's obviously economies of scale when it comes to being able to send across state lines. And you have well-capitalized companies that are able to grow the output regionally and send across state lines. And, and that's why, again, you, you know. Coca-Cola doesn't make every product that they sell around the world. They go find bottling companies regionally to go follow their secret sauce recipe and slap their label on it. Right. And so, um, you know, I see, I, I, I think we see a lot of what we've seen in other industries come very, very quick in cannabis. Um, there's too much fragmentation, um, as it stands today, um, yeah. for it to, to be able to sustain where we're at. Uh, another question for you. What's your favorite business book? Ooh, 
favorite business book. You already know what I want to say here. The Go-Giver. The Go-Giver. Yeah. Bob Berg and John copy right here. They gave me. Let's go. Let's yeah. go. Uh, I need to reread it because it's been a minute. Uh, but I, I really wish I remembered who gave me that book because they deserve a shout out. I was young. I was right out of college. And it was just like, you know, obviously, you know it, but for the listeners here, you know, it, it's it's a gentleman, I think his name's Joe is in, in the book. And he's kind of like hit, come to a crossroads in his career and is looking how to get to that next level. Uh, and he comes across this guru that basically coaches him on, you know, these different principles. Like I think one is influence and one's being like authentic, but like the whole premise, the name of the book is go give her obviously a play on words on go getter, right? Yeah. Instead of going and getting stuff, like just give, right? Like give to your community, um, do things and not expecting an immediate return, um, yeah. you know, network for the sake of networking, help connect people for the sake of just connecting people. Um, it really just talks to the spirit of, I think the ultimate networker. I think that's who that person is on yeah. that book. It's just the ultimate selfless connecting guy, um, you know, and, you know, not to spoil the book. Right. But it ends up, the guy ends up everything that he was looking for comes to fruition because of very serendipitous things that happened to him by him just being selfless. Right. And so yeah. um, building relationships, you know, ultimately I think too is, and I think this can apply very well to the cannabis industry because we like, we talked about there's, kind of a transactional mindset a lot of times right and it's what's in it for us like how are we going to make money and it's like how can you help others and then don't focus so much as counterintuitive as it is on what's going to come back because things tend to come back when you're adding value to the world mm -hmm. on their own right absolutely yeah. so what uh what's your favorite uh cannabis cultivar Ooh. so i'm a little bit more of a legacy strain so i like me uh, a good sour diesel, um, SVVOG, um, a strawberry cough, a lot of uh, sativa hybrid dominant type strain. So, I got you. well, you uh, are from Vegas. Well, you're from, you're not from Vegas, but you're, you yeah, were in Vegas. But that's so. where I, that's where I got yeah, my, my cannabis credentials, right? Yeah. So, I mean, SVVOG and sour diesel were some of the first, th first things in our cultivation. So, I grew yeah. to, I grew to love those strains for sure. It's kind of unfortunate. I, I I love sour diesel and I just feel like it's not something that people grow. I mean, I get it, especially on an indoor, um, you know, being kind of that longer growth cycle, but yeah, it's, uh, if you talk to like the old heads, man, they all, they all love sour diesel, but it's, it's funny. It's, thing my dad things, smoke. It, it, it's a funny thing about ways how things come back around. I was, I, I hadn't felt as old as, and I'm not that old, right? I'm 31. But being out at that, you know, I was in San Diego this past weekend at a, at a pool party and just seeing all of like the the swag and like the fashion. I'm like, this looks like I'm watching it, uh, the 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 movie Clueless. Like everything is like <laughs> 90s, hard 90s. Yeah, like, yeah. So just as much as the za is the new rage, like, yeah, I think the they're coming back around. Yeah, they'll come yeah. back around. That's awesome. Um, what What are some of your hobbies and interests outside of cannabis? Um, I spoke a little bit to being a basketball junkie. So I watch a lot of basketball. Um, I play a lot of basketball, but the past two years I've, uh, my body's caught up with me. So, um, I've actually been playing a ton of golf and really a lot of pickleball. Um, Dude. I am like pickleball, pickleball up, man. enthusiast at this point. So they even got the um, pickleball courts in my gym now. It's crazy. Dude. It's and that nuts. it's packed all the time. Like there's always kids in there just playing. It's yeah. like, 
and I play like three or four times a week. So love, love me some pickleball. I spend a lot of time on the lake. Uh, so a lot of wakeboarding, a lot of fishing. So nice. Um, where can folks find out more about you and what you're up to? On LinkedIn, Kevin Ford, E at the end of my last name, F-O-R-D-E. Uh, my Instagram, uh, not too exciting, but you can find me there. I am Kevin Ford. Uh, my handle is as if I'm some superstar or something, but it is what it is. <laughs> you can find it. So, but a lot of, I, I, tr I try to post a lot on LinkedIn. So find me on LinkedIn. You'll see me give my raw, unfiltered opinion on this industry, um, about my yeah, business, have, where we've You always got good felt. things to say on there. Yeah, yeah, I got to post. I got to post today. Now that you reminded me, <laughs> um, I'll I'll add your links to the show notes too, so folks can uh, can find you on both those platforms. That'd be great. I appreciate it. And then what? Fireballcannabis.com. Fireball can Fireballcanna.com. Thank Fireball you for Canna. the plug. I should have done that myself. Fireball Cannabis official on Instagram. Um, we're not too active. Every time I post, I get flagged by the yeah right uh, Mark yeah. Zuckerberg's cannabis police so uh but yeah fireball canna official um and then uh, fireballcanna.com as well sweet kevin appreciate having you man thank you for spending time, some time with me yeah it was right. a pleasure all right that wraps up today's show i hope you enjoyed it for additional information on the episode and links to kevin's website and social media please check out the show notes at podcast.diamondminers.co forward slash episode dash five. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the DMC newsletter so you can have industry insights from yours truly delivered directly to your email inbox. And as always, thanks so much for listening and I will see you next time. You've been listening to the Diamond Miners podcast with Benjamin Ballinger. If you found this podcast valuable, please take a minute to give the show a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe for more episodes just like this one. You can also follow DMC on Twitter and LinkedIn at DiamondMinersCO or connect directly with me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash BR Ballinger.